Welcome to the fourth episode of Cinema Smorgasbord Presents The Films of John Singleton, where we run the entire filmography of a particular director. On this episode, we're looking at the historical drama Rosewood from 1997, as well as 2001's Baby Boy. It's the films of John Singleton. I'm Doug Tilly, and with me as always is the private dick that's a sex machine to all the chicks, Liam O'Donnell. How you doing today, Liam? Wow, this would have been much more appropriate intro for the Shaft episode, Doug. No, I, I understand that, but I, at this point, <laughs> Liam, I don't have full confidence we'll ever reach that <laughs> I'm okay. Um, I'm tired of snow, which is like, you know, duh, of course I am. I'm a real human and not one of these monsters that pretends to like winter. And... Uh, um, you know, I, I just got back from the doctor and nothing's wrong, but I just find the entire experience of going to the doctor to be a grading thing. So now I'm just in a yes. cranky mood because of it. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm in a cranky mood as well, Liam. Do you know why? I, I have not a single <laughs> clue. I couldn't possibly know. I mean, you're talking to me, so you should be in a joyful mood. I would be, Liam. I Usually I do find talking to you very relaxing and enjoyable. However, in this particular case... Uh, we're going to be covering the same material, Liam, that we've covered already entirely. And why is that, Liam? Can you explain that to me? Well, the in theory, that's because we <laughs> actually have recorded this episode before, and then that episode got erased. Who knows how? And um, it's a mystery. It's a mystery. <laughs> Uh, but the reality, Doug, is there's no audio record of that conversation, so I choose to believe it didn't happen. And until you can prove to me with a Snopes article that I'm wrong, I'm going to say there is no original episode. I have chat logs of apologies that would suggest <laughs> that I could probably prove it in a court of law. Oh, were they, uh, were yeah. they your apologies, Doug? Did you apologize? I, I'm Canadian. I've never apologized for anything. Um <laughs> Liam O'Donnell, uh, yes, as we're, we're suggesting here, there was a technical issue when we recorded this episode previously, so we're doing it again, which is fine. I mean, it's fine. There's a lot of really interesting material to cover on this episode. It's just hard. Like, you give it all. You put it all out there, and then it's gone, and you got to kind of reignite that fire, Liam. And I feel like because – maybe it's because of the snow. I'm having trouble reigniting my fire. Sure. I mean, I think we can, um, you know, pull the screen up a little bit and say these are already two movies that we have a bit of a mixed feeling about, both in just our responses to them, which is not certainly certainly one more so than other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I think also, and it's worth naming, this represents kind of a turning point in our coverage, uh, even though we have one more episode covering Shaft. Mm-hmm. In that this, uh, both of these movies kind of are, in my mind at least, uh, the last bits of a certain like era of John Singleton filmmaking. Um, Absolutely, and, and there are positive and negative aspects to that. Yeah, one hundred percent. And it's it's funny because some of the like the movie that we probably have the most issue with that we're going to be talking about today is not what I would consider John Singleton's worst movie. And in fact, it's a very personal movie, and you can tell that in a lot of different ways. But it is, like you said, it feels like a turning point and not necessarily a positive one. Uh, and in fact, 
the result, I guess, or the feedback or the or the uh, financial result of that movie was such that he stopped making what I would consider as personal movies after afterwards. He kind of goes Hollywood afterwards. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just that, you know, the films that we've already covered on this podcast, like your Too Fast, Too Furious's, or Abduction, you know, they, it feels like they're missing the heart and, and in some ways the brain of uh, of some of the movies that were penned by John Singleton. Well, and for me, it is frustrating as well because um, Baby Boy, which is the movie we're sort of alluding <laughs> to, uh, is the first movie we've watched that is fully a John Singleton movie that I fully did not enjoy as much, though there are aspects to it that I think are good that we'll cover when we get there. But it's it's kind of like you know when we were covering other parts of his career where he was rightly or wrongly sort of thought of as a director for hire, it was easy to write off if I didn't like those movies because it's like, well, this is just not John Singleton doing his work. But I don't think anyone could argue that Baby Boy is not his movie. It is very much his movie. Yes. And yet it didn't work for me. And it might, I might have more ire for it than it deserves, partly because it might be the only fully John Singleton movie I don't like. And that is going to be partly... Uh, uh, determined by Shaft. I don't know. Did he write Shaft? Is that a very John Singleton? I haven't seen Shaft, uh, so I don't know. He so for Shaft, he was involved in the screenplay, but he he certainly wasn't the sole writer of it. So what that means is the last movie that we're covering for this podcast, which he was both the writer and the director for, as well as producer. But that's something else we can talk about. Um, is one I don't particularly love and i guess that's inevitable when you cover any sort of director's filmography there'll be something that is very much them that you don't enjoy because no one you know no one bats a thousand i don't think that being said it's kind of frustrating for me it's kind of sad for me that that's like one of the ways that we're ending is on this film that i wanted to be better than it was Liam, last year, screenwriter Gregory Poirier uh, wrote a article for Deadline, uh, basically talking about his relationship with John Singleton. Um, this is, of course, was written after John Singleton's death. It's a really interesting article to read. Uh, this is the writer of Rosewood, by the way. Um, a, because I didn't know the guy was white, so that was that was a surprise to discover. Um, and B, because they had sort of a complex relationship. And actually, that's what makes, I think, the article pretty interesting. That that it wasn't necessarily a combative relationship. It seems like when they worked together on Rosewood, uh, Gregory was pretty young, and this was his first kind of uh, um, opportunity to have like a Hollywood movie. So, you know, he was kind of a neophyte in regards to it. But he also hit that situation that you hear about sometimes where John Singleton tried to take a writing credit and he felt betrayed by it. And it really kind of complicated their relationship. It makes for a really interesting and revealing uh, read. Uh, did you have any thoughts about this, about, uh, about Gregory Poirier as the writer of Rosewood? Well, I agree with you. It is interesting to think of this film as written by a white guy. Um, I will say his author picture kind of helped because he's one of the more confusing <laughs> white guys I've ever seen. And that on one hand, he is covered in tattoos. And on the other hand, he has fully sort of devolved into either like soccer dad or a semi-retired police officer. You know what I mean? Like, anyways. Um, uh, but that being said, it, it was also interesting because... Um, it's written in a way that's meant almost to be an apology or yeah. uh, maybe mm -hmm. not an apology, but he regrets the fact that him and John 
drifted apart. Yes. And the fact that he got to see John later and they got along gives him a lot of sort of hope that maybe everything was cool between them, but he clearly misses his friend. Yeah. And in some ways, it's not helpful for us because I think because he misses his friend so much, other than this incident, he mostly writes about everything as like amazingly positive, you know, sort of paints a picture of John as this like, uh, of John Singleton as this like, uh, you know, master of film craft, mm-hmm. which is probably true. But it, 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 I think if you read that article, having never seen Rosewood, you might think going into Rosewood, you're about to watch one of the like masterpieces of 90s cinema. And it's good, but I don't think it's that. I think um, that's fair. And, and so I think that um, there's a little bit of that going on. But more interestingly, it's the fact that his context of what happened is I was – I'm speaking as if I was him. I was sensitive as a new writer. John did this thing. I was hurt by it. And, you know, this is about me managing my ego. Well, that's because in his eyes, John is already a known quantity. And in some ways, that's kind of true. He has a lot of attention after the movies he's done. But John is still a pretty young man at this point. And I'm sure is like doesn't want his own career to get away from him. He's not, you know, it's it's really easy to think of him as like, well, he's John Singleton at this point. He's huge. It's like he's still pretty young and of his the movies he's done to this point, not a lot of them have been uh able to replicate the success of Boys in the Hood. And in some ways you could really say like was John Singleton ever able to really live outside of his own shadow when it comes to Boys in the mm, Hood. You know what I mean? Interesting. It, How many interviews did he give later in life where people were like, it's John Singleton. He directed Boys of the Hood. Yeah. And you're like, yeah, and other things too. You know what I mean? So all that to say, him making this decision where he he's on there as like a story credit or whatever it was for a while, it also smacks to me as someone who's trying to figure things out. And that doesn't come across in the piece because that's not how he thinks of John Singleton. He thinks of John Singleton as like a mentor figure right. who he idolizes and who he has deep regrets about drifting away from. And also, John Singleton was a writer, right? He did write a number of his movies, including exactly. uh, one of the ones we're talking about today. So, you, I mean, I, I've always found that collaborative process around writing screenplays to be... I mean, it must be really difficult to unwind, and it's great that there's arbitration for that for writers uh, through the Screen Actors Guild or the with the writers through the Writers Guild, uh, because otherwise there probably would be a lot of confusion around these credits. But that's one of the things he talks about in the article. It's like he was feeling really anxious about it when he found that John Singleton had put his name on it, and someone just told him, "It's like, yeah, let the guild work it out. That's what they're there for." And and he, I think he was still such a new writer that he didn't understand that this is something that happens all the time. I mean, I, there's a part of me that also thinks that having John Singleton's name on the screenplay actually would have led more credibility to to this role. But I mean, maybe that's just that's just me thinking from 2021 brain. No, I 100% had the same thought, and in fact, thought maybe John Singleton was like thinking this would help help the movie. You know what I mean? Because he's a known quantity, whereas this dude isn't. You know. I mean, that's a really easy thing to say, though, right? Because I mean, it, there is a the money issue regarding it, and the credit issue as well. This was made to be an award-winning movie. I know that sounds kind of uh, cynical, but I mean, this movie was clearly inspired and, and audibly inspired. I think John Singleton talked about it by uh, Steven Spielberg's success with Schindler's List. This was meant to be a message movie to a certain extent, and the idea was that this was a movie that was going to get a lot of profile and potential award uh, attention. So, you know, the person whose name that is on the script for that movie, that's a big deal, especially for a guy who who knows, right? This is his only... 
Hollywood movie, John Singleton's going to get more opportunities. This guy has no idea where he's going for uh, going from in the future. And frankly, his his career going forward is nothing like what you would expect knowing that he started with Rosewood. Sure, but that has nothing to do with John Singleton's name because eventually he did get writing credit. And it turns out it didn't help him that much. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I totally get it. I just think that he's right in the, the part that I definitely feel is on point is when he kind of names that this is just the mistake of a young writer who doesn't know how things work. Right. He doesn't realize like, you know, there's other people to deal with this. It would be extremely awkward if we expected every writer to get into a fight about it, uh, you know, and that this is just one edition of the script. You know what I mean? Like how many, how many movie sets are there where the script goes around and it's got a different title every time there's a new script because they haven't decided what the name of the damn movie is yet. <laughs> so like, I just think it's, it's it, to me, it makes sense that with hindsight, he's able to say, eh, I was, I was probably wrong about this, but I just think it's funny that he assumes it's a, it's maybe a power move or something. He, he sees it as a move of strength from John. Right. And whereas I'm thinking maybe not. You know what I mean? Like maybe he's thinking, if this is going to be really great, maybe I do want my name. You know, there might be a sense of like less about his authority and more about he's worried about his own legacy as a director and where he's going next. You know, it shows how when it comes to the making of a movie, even on, on this large Hollywood level, that that the egos do start to clash and they that yes. it can get very complex in regards to it. I mean, I, again, like I said, the complications of, of a collaborative medium like filmmaking means that. There are situations, and you were just referring to them, where someone does a first draft of a movie, and by the time you get to the seventh draft, they brought in ten writers, and it looks nothing like the first draft, but that first writer still deserves to have his name on it because he came up with the idea, or there's some, you know, kind of general concept, but it just, it, it just you know, we've heard many stories about that before. Um, Liam, I think what we'll do is we'll take a little break. When we come back, we're actually going to talk about the movie that Gregory Poirier wrote, Rosewood from the year 1997, right after this. Warner Brothers presents, from director John Singleton and producer John Peters, the extraordinary story of how one town faced fear with courage, fought hate with dignity, and risked their lives to defend their home. John Voigt, Ving Rhames, Michael Rooker, Esther Roll, Don Cheadle. We need to pray. Now, dear Lord. I ain't no praying move, preacher. Now, I was born and raised in Rosewood. This here's my home, and I'll be damned if I'm gonna let anybody run me off it. Spurred by a white woman's lie, vigilantes destroy a black Florida town and slay inhabitants in 1923. It's Rosewood from the year 1997, based on a true story about the Rosewood Massacre. As we mentioned, of course, directed by the great John Singleton and written by Greg Poirier. I mentioned that his career went on to a kind of interesting or unique places after uh, after Rosewood. He would go on to direct the comedy Tomcats, if you know what that movie is. He also wrote the Jackie Chan comedy the Spy Next Door, some very, very different and certainly uh, less serious content from uh, from Gregory after this movie came out. It has an amazing cast, including John Voight uh, as, as kind of our uh, 
in this case, our only good white character for the most part, uh, Ving Rhames, uh, as the character man, sort of the man with no name, Don Cheadle, uh, Bruce McGill, uh, Robert Patrick shows up in a single scene, a lot of familiar faces here. Liam, I want to start with your kind of general thoughts on a movie that I know that you have some complex feelings on. What did you think of Rosewood? I think overall, I very much enjoy this film. Um, it is... <laughs> enjoy is kind of a funny word here, but I know what you mean. Well, in the sense that I think it is a above-average historical epic that I think has at its core something very good, which is people in America in the 90s, side note, also true in 2021, unfortunately, mm -hmm. um, aren't aware of the massacres uh, that occurred uh, not just post-Civil War, which, of course, there was uh, a lot, but even like heading into post World War One and even post World War Two, um, we're unaware of the the terror that white folks, uh, you know, primarily in the South, but other parts of the country as well, unleashed upon uh the black community and probably other communities as well, uh, but just focusing on that thing. Um, we tend to at least prior to um, some more recent conversations around Black Lives Matter, the historical narrative tended to be just one of like a general oppression between the Civil War and the Civil Rights era and not the actual terror campaigns that were organized by the white establishment, um, sometimes based around fear of uh, uh, black folks and in a lot of cases, their economic success, sometimes just as a way to like rally white people together as a voting block or as a, a source of authority. Sometimes it seems just out of pure uh, evil, uh, white folks, you know, for uh, 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 as a community got together and had uh, hangings, burnings, uh, all kinds of uh, massacres. This was just a regular part of life in a lot of places. And what this film seems to be attempting to do is to tell the story of a specific event. Um, it is also an exciting adventure film that deviates from the historical narrative in order to make the film a little more engaging and exciting. And I think that is both successful and unsuccessful for me. Um, it's overall successful when it comes to making the movie compelling. It is unsuccessful in the sense of um, by having the Ving Rhames character add this element of like uh, uh, excitement, I think it underplays the events that happened uh, in real time, basically, in, in mm -hmm. the actual historical record. And um, because this is, as far as we know, literally the first telling of this story in mass media. Right. And it is, not only that, very timely to the events that were going on when the movie was made. I think it misses an opportunity to educate a little bit better, um, and especially when it comes to the fact that this story had not been told before. So it, it, it has a little bit of darkness around it, I think, because this was like... Uh, when I say it was recent to those events, it's worth noting for people, this film uh, is developed because there's a landmark decision to pay reparations for the events at Rosewood. Right. And Florida pays uh, the, the uh, you know, uh, 
descendants of the survivors for having not protected them. And they really did not pr- make any efforts to protect them or serve justice or anything. So there, there's some, and that reaches national news. And that is part of the motivation for this movie is not just telling the story, but also coinciding with this news event. And by making it more exciting and more palatable to a larger audience, it kind of sometimes feels to me a little bit like, I don't know, using this as grist to make an exciting film more than telling the story. Now, I don't know that that makes the movie itself bad, but it's a little frustrating. And that's not just me projecting it to the past. Some of the survivors who were consultants on the film also criticized the film once it came out. They felt like it did the same thing. So I, I don't know. I just I, I, It's a complicated reaction I'm having, Doug, because I don't know. I think overall the movie itself is pretty good. I'm just not convinced it was the right call this soon to the revelation. So it's a complex thing, Liam, because you know it does kind of beg the question, maybe this movie doesn't get made if it doesn't get made in this form. There's also the right, element right. of, because Singleton is obviously inspired by Spielberg, and one of the things that Spielberg does really well is that he takes a historical incident and he uses it as the background to build a story, and he makes the story very, very engaging, which makes people kind of learn by accident. I know that's kind of a simplistic way of putting it. So it doesn't feel like a documentary, that you feel like that you're kind of more engaged, that everyone's a little bit more three-dimensional, because you're really kind of paying attention, and you're really kind of engaged, you know, you're pulled in to the story being told. And I think that in a lot of cases, that works really well, and not just by Spielberg, by, by many other directors, but it kind of also feels like in this case, that this might be the only time the Rosewood story is told. So it's so right. important to get it right. It's also, we know, uh, just from reading that interview with the screenwriter, that they were making an incredible effort to get this as historically accurate as possible. They did tons of research. As you suggested, they had people who were actually involved uh, in the massacre, uh, or, or were in Rosewood at that time, were, were, the, were working on the film, making sure that the details were correct, that the look of it was correct. Uh, and the fact that some people felt kind of betrayed by the final result... It might be one of those cases where, well, it's just impossible. Like, I can either tell this story in this way or no one ever finds out about it. And th- that's the, really the only two options that are available to us. Now, that might seem silly now, but maybe in 1997, it didn't seem so silly. It's not like there were tons of black historical sure. epics that were coming out that with wide, uh, in a wide release. And, and, you know, and one of the things about John Singleton as a director that we've seen throughout this podcast is that he does like to kind of make mass market entertainment. That's kind of one of the things that he got into filmmaking to do. So sure. in this movie, I sometimes feel like he gives into his Spielbergian nature to try to tell a more exciting tale and a more adventurous tale than reflected reality. But I do think his intentions are positive with that. I think his intentions are that he wants to make people feel the content of this movie a little deeper because they're enjoying themselves on some level, even as they're being exposed to what is a really horrific story to, 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 to watch. And of course, the other side of that, that we both, I think, had trouble with, is a lot of this movie spends time on the white racists in this town. Like, a lot of the running time... A lot of time. ...is devoted to them, and especially looking back in retrospect, it seems really unusual, especially because aside from um, the... Um, the John Voight character, there's nothing really to them. They're just, you know, the, their, their whole deal is that there's different shades of racist 
uh, and that they, when the mob starts getting together and starts demolishing this town and killing the inhabitants within, that that they offer almost no resistance, even though they know that the story, deep down, they all know that the story at its core that uh, this woman got attacked by a black man is false. So it's 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 a really strange movie because it feels like it's capitulating to the necessities of something that we don't know if it had to capitulate or not, right? That well, th- Yes, please. I mean, I think it... Uh, the Focusing on the white racists, right? Well, let's just say on the white folks because even John Voight is racist in this film. So Yeah, in um, the film. He's, the hero. <laughs> you know, he, he's just human enough to be horrified at mass murder, you know, which the other, the other white folks are not. When John Voight is your voice of reason, you know something's gone wrong. Right. But, you know, and... and uh, I don't want to focus too hard on this, but I just want to say, like, it accomplishes something, but it also costs something. And I think this is related to our question here of historicity, right? So what it accomplishes is we get to see a the lie of the whole thing, that um, it's very unlikely that everyone was fooled into thinking this. It, all you need is the words, right? The words are a white woman was raped by a black man, which, by the way, isn't even the story that she told. Yeah. All she said was that she was uh, hit by a black man, and everyone heard that and said rape themselves. And, and because, uh, for those who haven't seen the movie, she's she has bruises on her face because right. she was beaten by a man that she was cheating on her husband right. with. And she had a reputation for this, right. which is also a, pro- a troublesome element. But please continue. I mean, and let's be clear. In the historical record, it is well documented that she also did not claim rape, but that's what everyone heard. Right. So, uh, uh, you know, and that's the thing. So that's what I'm trying to get to is that everyone in the story is either made up, right, or based on a historical figure. And what it feels like is that the writers felt they could have more leeway. So the positive here is documenting the, you know, with white supremacy, these they don't need to believe it. It is a fun communal activity. It offers them, it solidifies their identity. It makes them feel less bad about being poor. You know, all these people, not all, but a lot of them are very desperate people who clearly don't have a lot of authority. Um, I think the character of the judge, the way that he looks down on all of them is really helpful because it shows that part of what motivates their violence is their own insecurity. But rather than face their own class insecurity, they relate to the thing that they still have, which is their race superiority, that they get to, you know, devalue the lives of the black folks around them. It shows that um, they weren't clearly just motivated by justice. This was a fun thing. We know from pictures of lynchings that uh, white folks brought picnic baskets to lynchings. Mm -hmm. They uh, posed for the pictures. They had a good time. It was a fun communal activity to murder someone for no They would sell postcards of it afterwards. I mean, absolutely. This was a thing that that was seen as... Um, as joyful, absolutely. And so we get to see all that, and all that is brilliant. But I worry that we spend so much time with the white folks, right? Because the white folks aren't consultants on the film. And so we can fictionalize them and and do whatever we need to with them as much as we want as writers and not hurt anyone's feelings. Now, the black folks, you know, not all of them obviously survive, but some of them did, and they have memories of their real friends. And so the reality is I feel like they're partly underwritten because they are real. And there's like, it's possible there's an anxiety of like, we can't even do that much with these folks because if we do it wrong, there's someone here to say, well, that's not what they would say or that's not right. You know, whereas with the white people, they could do anything. White people could start, you know, eating the flesh of the dead and no one 
involved in the film is going to go, I think we're going a little too far. Like, I think we're pushing the, you know what I mean? So it just feels like we spend too much time with them when the story isn't just them. I'm glad we tell that part of the story. I think some time with them makes sense. If they were a faceless mob, we would lose some of the texture of this thing, which is that they're real people who are capable of this evil and are at different levels, right? Some of them are like very excited to do it. Some of them are less excited to do it, but still do it because they feel like that's who they have to be. It's what the society demands of them. And all that is good work. We don't get even a fraction of that texture for the uh, the black characters in the story, for most of them at least. A couple of people we get a little time with, but even then it's not that much. And we spend a lot of time with Ving Rhames' character, who isn't real, right? right? And we know he's not real. I don't. I really don't think anyone watching this movie is going to be folded into thinking this is a historical dude, you know? And it just feels like the moments that we could be getting more character uh, uh you know, more texture to these folks are spent more on like adventure kind of stuff. And I'm, you know, I'm not complaining that that adventure stuff is there per se. It's just, like I said, I want to know who these people are. I want to give them more of an identity and know who, who they were in the world. You know, it is still strange to think that this movie, which fixates and, and it fixates quite intentionally on kind of battered and burned and broken black bodies Right. That it shows that violence in such detail um, that it ends with a train being chased by horses with Ving Rhames shooting a shotgun at the people riding these horses in this kind of a, scene, a sequence that comes right out of a Western. It, it, it's very it's, – it's hard to kind of, of square the, the first three quarters of this movie with that final action scene because it feels like it's – much of the movie is trying to document a reality, even if it has this character or characters that didn't necessarily exist. But then the end of the movie doesn't feel like it comes out of a real reality at all. So it, it, I do think that even though I enjoy that final sequence and I think it's really well made, that it kind of undercuts the movie that comes before it. Right. Be- because you're having fun in a way that, in some ways you feel guilty for having fun. At least I did. Because you're not ever going to forget why this situation is the way it is. Uh, so it's a it's a really oddly kind of paced paced and structured movie. I think it's meant to give some sense of catharsis. Absolutely, you know, it is. Allah, Allah. Uh, you know, I hate to bring this up because there's other problems with him, but I think the same way that um, Inglorious Bastards is meant to give a sense of catharsis, right? And I think in some ways it has, right? In our current age of being faced with uh, with uh, neo Nazis and neo fascists, a lot of people have memefied parts of Inglorious Bastards because they they do find a certain catharsis there. But it's easy to fictionalize that story because it's a story that's been told even for schindler's list would would we be able to get the the movie you know whether you love or hate schindler's list put that aside would we be able to get schindler's list if there wasn't a Shoah or a million other movies that sort of tell the story if schindler's list was actually we just found out in the public consciousness about the Holocaust. And here's the first movie telling the story. That wouldn't work, right? Like, I, I just don't believe it would. And I think the issue here is partly that. Uh, and then it's partly, like, in the adventure of the whole thing, um, it doesn't, you know, th- th- they do a very good job, as you pointed out, of making sure we know the horrors that were done to this community. So then also making it exciting just it doesn't always tonally work, and it doesn't, I think, give that catharsis because 
this is such a new story. It's not no one watching this again, we know Ving Rames isn't real, but I bet it's not always clear. I don't think that this is a heightened reality because I don't think it's meant to be. I think it's meant to both tell the story and make it fun and exciting. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It it's what I feel like sometimes I feel like in this case we're being a little unfair to the movie in the sense that if this was telling the story of a an incident in white history, let's say, or something that has been documented a lot, then we probably right. wouldn't have a lot of these issues. But then we do see things that have not been documented a lot where they really mess with the historical record. And the film version becomes the version of the story. And because those movies are sometimes very well made, we don't we don't complain like we're complaining about this movie. I guess it's just because there's so few movies like this. And it really sure. was an attempt to do something very different and to tell a story that I, you know, in some ways you're going to get people into that, um, it, it into that theater because they're seeing, you know, recognizable faces like John Voight and they're seeing like Ving Rhames. He's the guy from Pulp Fiction and it looks like there's action in it and, and they're kind of being tricked, let's say, into learning about this awful historical thing at the same time. And I think at some level that was the intention behind this. You know, right. I think I, it's kind of strange when we talk about historical accuracy and talking about Tarantino with Inglorious Bastards. When Once Upon a Time in Hollywood came out, there were tales all over social media about people seeing the ending and not getting it. They didn't understand that Sharon Tate was murdered by, you know, Charlie Manson's followers. So that ending, which is supposed to be this, this uh, spoiler alert, this kind of twist on history, just like Inglorious Bastards has, it didn't hit those people the same way. And for them, that became the reality because they didn't know the story. And I think that when the case of Rosewood, maybe in 1997, because it was in the news, people had more of a general in-the-air awareness of what the story was. But honestly, even for me coming in 2021, I didn't know much about it. So the what I see, if I didn't read that that Ving Rhames wasn't a real person or that, you know, some of the white characters in this are kind of uh, amalgamated and things like that, then I would just accept this as the story which is the problem, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. really, really, when it comes to movies that are based on historical incident, especially um, under-told historical incident like that, I sometimes feel like they should be paired with a documentary telling the real full story. Yeah, I don't. I, I guess we should. I, I don't know if I should apologize, but I should definitely say, like, I don't want to beat this movie up too bad for this scenario. I think the larger criticism is that I don't think this was the time for this movie. This has just happened. We just heard about it. And the pitch, remember, wasn't this movie at all. The original pitch was a movie that told the story, but then also told the story of modern, you know, 90s, which isn't modern anymore, time uh, of them trying to get reparations. So that it was, it it, it had a whole courtroom drama aspect to it that I think would contextualize the whole thing. And instead, we got like a sexy Western, you know? Well, I'm pushing the envelope on that, but more of a Western than just. Uh, historical let's tell this story and in some ways I get that and I do want to say I am skeptical that if the movie had just played it straight and not added this sense of adventure that it would have been made and so I should say that straight up front all I'm doing y'all is giving you my my response to the movie as a watcher which is this is a pretty exciting film it's mostly well acted I think it's mostly well paced there's a lot to like about it but 
it to me doesn't tell the story very well and the movie doesn't just say here's a fun or not fun again because it's pretty dark but here is a exciting dark thriller and then at the end go by the way this was a true story you probably didn't even know that the movie is (laughs) about telling you the true story right it's not about being like Hey, because because imagine, I mean, uh, again, not that I'm a better director than John Singleton, but maybe the movie would be different if it was a fully fiction about fictionalized narrative. Right. And then it was like, hey, this is actually inspired by the real events here, which are far darker and less cathartic than what happened in this movie. You know what I'm saying? Like, It's, it's interesting because, you know, it's called Rosewood. So th- the fact that it's tied right. to a, sp- a specific place and a specific incident is right there in the name. But you're right. If they just did a fictionalized town that still was based as closely on Rosewood, maybe some of our our, uh, our difficulties with it wouldn't even exist because, it get, again, it wouldn't be entering the historical record as being the story of what happened. I think the thing that would still be true, though, and I'm I'm guessing maybe this is because of the screenwriter, but maybe also this is John Singleton feeling like he needs to uh, uh, he needs to focus on something for the audience is that that we still have the criticism of we spend a lot of time with these white folks, right? It's just a lot of time, and 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 again, I'm not saying we shouldn't spend any time. We need it, right? They are the they are the aggressors here, and that should be clear. There's nothing this community did to incite this violence. This is all about who white folks are. And just like any story of racism, that it should be about white people. Like That's just the reality, yeah. is that that's where racism comes from. That's who it's about. That's who the actors are. That being said, we really only get to know three or four black characters in a way that, like, tells some story and one of those characters is entirely made up uh and i just think you know i don't know it just as a viewer i just felt like i we could spend more time in that community and i think that would make the movie even more impactful i do wonder to what extent they couldn't do that because maybe the memories of the survivors was limited you know everyone had to be pretty old at this point right um they were pretty young at the time Maybe there were limits to the amount of information they had to tell the story. But, again, we've already added a gallivanting cowboy hero. You could fictionalize other parts of the story as well so that we have a little more context to that community of Rosewood. I wonder if this movie was to have been made in 2021, if we would still have the same criticisms about it because we are that much further removed and I imagine there's, if there's any survivors that for, uh, who are still alive, that they were incredibly young at the time. I don't think there's, it's very likely. Um, and but the other thing, other side of that is, if Rosewood was being made in 2021, it probably wouldn't have had to have been made like this. That maybe that right. there would be, maybe it would, maybe it would have to be even slicker, right? Maybe it would have to have a lot more explosions and things like that. But I, I would like to think that there's the opportunity for a little more nuance in a movie like this, that it doesn't feel like it has to shoehorn adventure elements into it. And it's funny for me to say that because I think Ving Rhames is terrific in this. He's really good as his character, Mr. Man. And I kind of love the idea of taking this spaghetti Western archetypes or Western archetypes in general and kind of inserting it into historical yeah, uh, movies, right? Where, yeah. where it's and I also like it as a way of telling the story where someone enters it and is witnessing these things, 
and you like you're kind of seeing it through their eyes because it gives an opportunity for people to tell this character more about what's going on. It's just that this particular incident, maybe it's because it's so dark and it's so horrific, and because it's so important that these stories, you know, like with the Tulsa race riots uh, in Watchmen, right? And I think that's a pretty the way that they tell that story and the way it brought it to people's uh, minds, people who had never heard of it before. It's, I imagine, kind of similar to how people responded to Rosewood at the time. But the way that, that that gets contextualized in that work compared to this one, it feels like it managed to tell that story and be impactful without without telling the audience, this is all you need to know about it. Yeah, that's a really good comparison. And I, I there's just something about the way that both uh, Watchmen and then I would also say Lovecraft Country draw from those historical moments. It is a way to say this is something that really happened, but obviously what we're doing is fictionalized. Right. And so it's like we're inspired by. And this film has a little more of the veneer of this is the real story. And um, it it could – I mean, it wouldn't be – I don't think it'd be that weird since we do get these cards that tell us, like, what's going on to make it clear within the context of the movie that you fictionalize what happened. Yeah. The movie never actually says – there was no big raves, you know, like it gives you historical information. It wants you to know what the real story was to a some extent. But you can see but, why they wouldn't want to do that, right? Because as soon as you start saying, oh, we've introduced fictionalized elements to this, then right. a white audience who's watching this is like, well, I mean, these white guys were bad, but they weren't that bad. And even at the end, they sure. say no, they don't know right. how many yeah. people really got killed here. Maybe they're just exaggerating that. You know how people are. <laughs> they're just always the worst. Yeah. I mean, I want to say I, I want to give Singleton some some props here as well, because yeah. this is still a really beautiful movie. And I mean, beautiful might be the wrong word because of how much ugliness is on display, but it's very well made. Uh, and on a technical level, it, it really does look great. And the performances are terrific. They really are. And I really like certain sequences in it a lot, including there's a part where it shows kind of like the telephone lines with the suggestion that this message of this woman being raped has is being sent out into the world. And then right. you see this group of, of people and they're uh, doing a baptism and... They're, they're wearing their robes and then you start hearing the whispers in the crowd and they're singing a hymn about like forgiveness and caring and then uh, they just immediately on a dime they just switch and start talking about how they have to get get down to Rosewood to do something about this. It, it, I think it's a really effective way of showing how mass communication can sort of fuel the fury uh, of this sort of, of mob violence and – I mean, frankly, we've seen that in recent history in a lot of different ways. So I think it's 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 timeless in some ways, but um, it also feels that it also feels like maybe this wasn't the right time to tell certain other parts of the story. Yeah, I mean, I guess what it boils down to is the that in 2021, I'm also separated enough from this that my initial response is a lot more focused on. It's a pretty well-told movie that only has a few flaws to it, you know? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think if part of the argument was this is how we reach white audiences, I think it's pretty clear that it wasn't entirely effective at doing that. I don't know that a lot of people learned that much more from this movie than they did from just reading articles about it, you know, the case in the paper or whatever. And, uh, you know... It certainly didn't reach all the actors in the film, um, <laughs> since a few of them are now, you know, aligned with white supremacy. But all that being said, um, I think what it really kind of um, 
boils down to me a little bit is that um, it's a mix. It's uh, I, it's not even a clear response from the survivors, right? The survivors who were a part of making the film were also split. Some of them thought the movie was great. And they love Ving Rhames coming along and shooting all these white people, and that's what they wanted. Um, but then I think for some of the other people, and, and I guess this is where it's worth saying, and I don't think it should completely color anyone's response to the movie per se, but they just felt like, look, if we had had this magic man who could shoot anyone who opposed him, we probably would have gotten out okay. And things wouldn't have been so bad. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And and so I think that we need that, that if we had a champion that 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 yeah, exactly. That maybe we'd have the ability to fight back. But I, I mean it one of the things that this movie kind of makes clear is that when a bunch of angry, riled up white people get their fucking dithers up there's really nothing that you can do to push back the against whole, them. The whole society is on their side. Everything exactly. is for them. Everything. There's no justice. The people up the chain. I mean, when the judge shows up and he thinks they're not being tough enough on the black community for a crime that didn't fucking happen. It's like, yeah. I and mean, I mean, notably, you know, the the what there is of a police force there goes right along with it. Right. And I think that all of that is worth taking note of. And if you haven't seen this film um you're just listening because you like us or john singleton i would still recommend seeing it and really focusing on i think it is a pretty good depiction i just think that in depicting so much of the white folks inevitably there's going to be sympathetic characters and it just sounds like from the historical record that there were maybe less sympathetic people but who knows maybe not I, i i i don't know i i just i kind of wanted something where I spent a lot more time with the uh, with the black community getting to know them is I think how I wanted the movie to be a little bit different. You know what I mean? And that takes away the question of should the film be an adventure film or not? Maybe it should be an adventure film and I would feel better about the adventure filmness of it if I felt like I knew more of that community. But the way it seems is that we get to know Ving Rhames, we get to know Don Cheadle, we kind of get to know a couple of the female characters. We get to know a little bit of Aunt Sarah, especially because her death is pretty impactful for the broader community. It's, right. It shows they've crossed the line even for the white folks in the community because they know her in a way they don't know the other people. But that's not a lot of people. I mean, if you just look at this cast list, right, it's a, it's a pretty mixed list, but it's pretty clear that there are a lot of like white characters we get to know pretty well. Yeah. Um, and I don't think it's the same thing for the the black characters. And again, that's not saying because I know better than John Singleton. I'm just, you know, I, I just feel like that would have also been effective and uh, that there's a little bit of a lack of balance there. Uh, but again, um, that is a, uh, let's say, a after the fact criticism. In watching it, it plays really well. Um, uh, it, it is mostly engaging and it, there's not a lot about the craft of the film to criticize. It's maybe a little longer than it needs to be, um, only because I think some of the action sequences are like really leaned upon, and I don't know that they're all as effective. But you know, Ving Rhames running through the woods to shoot the dudes—that's that's sick. Um, the train sequence—I I don't know. It doesn't feel like the best way to end the movie, but it's well done. You know what I mean? So I just think there's there's a lot of stuff to 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 find valuable about the film, um, even if we have some concerns. Just want to end on a letterbox review for Rosewood from a user named Cinema underscore in underscore one. They gave it a two and a half star rating and said, 
As one of the black survivors of this atrocity apparently said, I would like the story of Rosewood to be told like it was, not some jackass riding out of the woods shooting at somebody. Way too fictionalized and way too much screen time spent on white people. I think a summary of both of our feelings on the movie Rosewood. Still, like you said, a movie that I, I really recommend that people check out. Uh, come to your I mean, own conclusions I, I, on it. Please. I gave it three and a half stars. Like yeah. you know what I mean. Like I just, give it a higher rating to too. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm not quite at the you know it's half good thing. I think I think it's mostly good, but I do think the concerns that this person brings up are worth worth mentioning. You know, one hundred percent. Let's take a break, Liam. When we come back, we're going to talk about a very different John Singleton movie. Oh yes, 2001's Baby Boy. Ain't that the way it go? You know what your problem is, baby boy? You need to stop sitting around here trying to blame everybody for your problems. You my girl. I already told you you can't stay here. My baby daddy ain't having it. Who, Jody? They don't be calling my house asking to speak to my woman. Sandy, baby. Who we gonna kill, Jody Joe? Do something. It's allowed to come through with all his homies and shoot me, my girl, and my baby. Jody! Mama! Ready to go to war, huh? I ain't trying to be no killer. Columbia Pictures presents One Man's Fight to Change the Game. A film by John Singleton, Baby Boy. Stay up, baby boy. I got you. In South Central LA, a misguided 20-year-old African-American man, a baby boy, faces the commitments of real life. It's Baby Boy from the year 2001, written and directed by John Singleton. Uh, it originally was written for uh, Tupac to star in, but he passed away, or uh, maybe passed away is a pretty light way of saying what happened to him, uh, before it came out, and instead stars Tyrese Gibson in the role of Joseph Summers. We also have Taraji P. Henson, very memorable in the movie, Omar Gooding here as well. Uh, Ving Rhames shows up once again, and of course... Snoop Dogg is in here, Liam. I know that we both have kind of complex feelings about this movie as well. I want to hear your thoughts on Baby Boy. Um, I almost don't want to say too much about it, but I feel like I have to only because I just spent so much time voicing criticism of Rosewood, which is a much better movie. Yes. <laughs> so I think it would be unfair to not also voice criticisms here. But the thing about this film is that Unlike Rosewood, which mostly works and is really compelling, I, I find there's just something for me broken about this movie. And I think it is, if, if I ignore some of the lighter things that I don't love, but I don't hate either, they just aren't for me. Uh, the thing that essentially doesn't work is this like um, this combination of drama and comedy, right? Uh, that the movie is trying to hit. It's trying to be both a serious film about uh, masculinity and identity right. and uh, trying to come uh, to yourself and to your own power and adulthood in a system designed to keep you uh, underfoot and as and 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 um, e- even in a state of, of regression. Um, and the the struggle uh, within that community, you know, without bringing in, as we sort of criticized Rosewood for, Rosewood had a lot of whiteness in it. This film does not have that. And right. in fact, it really is about the internals of a very specific community. However, it also tries to be very funny at times. Yeah. And the tenor of the comedy 
makes the drama seem out of place. When I think not watching the movie and thinking back on it, I think the parts that probably are pretty well done are the dramatic elements. But because the comedy is so silly and so goofy, um, it makes it feel like the drama is out of place. But the drama is the point of the movie. The movie is not, it's not like the movie is Friday and it just happens to have a couple of serious moments in right. it. Right. Which you could say Friday does, but does very well because I love Friday. Um <laughs> The point of the movie is the drama. That's what the movie is. And the fact that there are these comedic elements is like, a, you know, I think a way to keep the movie going. It's a way to add a little bit of like energy, dy- dynamism to the movie. And it doesn't work for me. I find the comedy off-putting. I don't find it particularly funny. Um, and then I think at a, at a sort of a basic level, I don't – it'd be easy for me to write off – uh, Tyrese's performance. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't think it's great, but I also just don't think the character is written very well. And it's unclear to me all the time why everyone puts up. I I guess the charm of that character isn't clear to me to justify the way the rest of the world relates to him, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, but there are parts of it that I actually really like too i like the weird way it opens with him in this womb like that's got to be one of the weirder ways things john singleton had done as a director Mm -hmm. i like some of the emotional moments he has and and those aspects to it um but i also think there's an extent and we'll get to more specifics later where the film handles some serious ideas and the way that it handles them leads one to think it's justifying certain behaviors that I don't think it is. I think it actually is trying to problematize them, but it doesn't hit those notes hard enough, and it ends up feeling like, you know, an accusation on Singleton films is that they're so masculine that they don't take their female, he doesn't take his female character seriously. And I don't think that's the case in this movie, but you could see that because of certain ways that the story is told. Yeah, I uh, I think Tyrese does a good job in an impossible role, right? Sure, I, I think right. the difficulties with this has less to do with his performance and more to do with a character that doesn't really seem to make complete sense when you watch the movie as a whole. Uh, and part of that is because of the tonal issues that you mentioned, where at some points he's you know he's selling women's clothes and it's supposed to be fun and light and fun, you know. And then later, you know, he's getting his friend together so they can shoot somebody, and you know, and and he has to deal with the trauma of almost murdering someone or watching someone get murdered on his call. And we're supposed to be, you know, both of those coexisting. They can coexist in a movie, but the way that the movie kind of switches tones, it just seems like it's it's in an instant. And maybe, you know, in some ways, I want to be sympathetic to it because that's kind of how life is sometimes. Life can be really funny and then it can get really tragic in a second, but I don't think that it's necessarily supposed to be reflecting that. I think it's just a little unsure how serious it wants to be at times. Right. And and going back to what you're saying about like Poetic Justice has such a great female role for Jenna Jackson in that yep. movie. Yep. And Taraji P. Henson is amazing in this. She's so amazing that she sort of makes everyone else look kind of worse in comparison because she is such a dominant force of nature. But she also isn't a great character because she has to she basically is always just has to react to Joseph's character, right? She has just has to be uh, she she is completely at the end of her rope, frustrated by this guy. But when he's gone, she's seen as being kind of pathetic. She just sits by herself playing solitaire, calling her friends and pining for him. And it's just like like 
I get that we see this in so many movies. Like, what does she see in this guy? But no, legitimately, what the fuck does she see in this guy? He doesn't seem very kind. He doesn't seem very consistent. And I know that this movie is really about that evolution that he's supposed to be finding his adult self at the end and taking responsibility. But I don't really feel like the movie earns that because it all happens so quickly. So much of the movie is 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 focused on him being this baby boy and getting into trouble and getting into all this sort of conflict and fucking around on her and being an asshole. And and then it's just supposed to be in the last 10 minutes that he figures his shit out because of this trauma that he experiences. And it's just hard to believe that this is going to be a permanent change. And maybe that's right. Maybe that's what the movie is trying to say. That, you know, the movie might end with the closing credits of them kind of reconnecting and him taking care of his child and it's going to be the, the reality going forward. But, you know, in the back of our minds, we're like, Oh, this guy, he's still a fuck-up, right? He hasn't unfucked up himself just because of this one incident. So, you know, I, I, maybe maybe I'm, I'm reading the end of it a little wrong, but it seems like it's trying to end on a happy ending, and I'm not sure it necessarily earns that happy ending. Liam, I want to read the quote that the movie starts with, um, because I've read other people say that it's actually not just a, uh, a quote that's meant to suggest the theme of this movie, but a theme of all of John Singleton's movies. He says... There's this psychiatrist, a lady named Frances Cress Welsing. She has a theory about the black man in America. She says because of the system of racism in this country, the black man is meant to think of himself as a baby, a not yet fully formed being who has not yet realized his full potential. To support her claim, she offers the following. First off, what does a black man call his woman? Mama. Secondly, what does a black man call his closest acquaintances? His boys. And finally, what does a black man call his place of residence? The crib. And I do think that this... I do think that the, the the script for this movie absolutely just grew out of John Singleton reading this quote, but it's also a very simplistic quote, and and I'm sure the the uh, the psychiatrist elaborates greatly on it. But the movie takes a lot of that very literally, right? We see him riding around on a bike, we see him you know hanging around with his friends and very aimless and playing video games. That this is supposed to be a child. What is it about this character that we're supposed to? That we're supposed to see as being wrong that has to be fixed within the context of this movie? I mean, I think that's a very good question. I think we're supposed to sense that um, he's kind of on the cusp of um, making the wrong decisions. Right. You know, um, and that he does make some of them, but those decisions are based out of his inability to like realize himself fully, you know? Um, his inability to um, understand how responsible he is for himself but again um how i i think the movie also wants to take seriously the idea that that that's not easy to do so we're supposed to be frustrated with how he's handling the world but also understand that it's not you know without a certain he he's not going to college he doesn't have a lot of job options there's not a lot of financial security his mom can't just buy him stuff when he needs it you know what i mean so the idea that he's supposed to strike out on his own is like you know, it's it's not easy to do as we see today when, you know, we're in such a economic uh, uh, disparity place now sure. that a lot of people way past his age are living at home, regardless of their economic situation, because they can't establish themselves easily. You know, yeah. mm-hmm. that be that being said, he does have two baby mamas. He's got two children. Right. And he could with uh, the issue. I, I, I think part of the issue we have here is uh uh, 
we're supposed to see that if he could grow up a little bit, you know, so uh, uh, Yvette is Taraji P. Henson's character. Uh, he's not living with Yvette because he can't commit, right? If if he could just commit, they could be, I mean, clearly she has, like, not even saying, like, he should rely on her financially per se, because then it's like he's going from one mother figure to another. Right. But he could move out of his mom's house. That's a reality for him, even if he's maybe even younger than we think is too late or whatever. It's because the, the, I mean, it sets up the the difficulty in him doing that being a financial one, and then we find out then he goes through a situation where well now he's making money, so there's less of a barrier for that. Right, and not only that, he's made the decision. Yeah, he, it's really clear in the film that even if he was making money, he's not at first. But even if he was, he wouldn't be trying to move out of his mama's house. Right. He wants to live with his mama. Mm-hmm. Why? To what end? And I, you know, I think that we're supposed to like get that at some visceral level. Personally, I don't think that aspect of the movie works very well. Um, I, I get that there's this whole Oedipal uh, thing between him and Ving Rhames' character. Uh, you know that that there's he doesn't trust Melvin, and he has reason not to trust Melvin because of his past. But that is, it's presented less like he's protecting his mom and more like he's just a you know a petulant child unwilling to leave his mother's house. Roger Ebert wrote about this movie in his three-and-a-half-star review. There has never been a movie with this angle on the African-American experience. The movie's message to men like its hero is, yes, racism has contributed to your situation, but do you have to give it so much help with your own attitude? Do, do you agree with that, Liam, that that's what this movie is trying to say? Basically, that like even in that, that uh, the quote from the psychiatrist, racism is in the background of this movie, but there's almost no white faces in this entire movie. This is a movie about a society that is already feeling the effects of this racism. Breaking away from that doesn't necessarily require you abandoning your community. It has to do with your attitude. And do you think that's what the core of this is? It's something that we kind of see in Boys in the Hood as well, right? That that it's not that it's self-created, the situation, but that if you're not pushing back against it and if you are embracing it and you're saying that this is all you can be, then that is what you're going to be. I think I always feel like Lawrence Fishburne's character is very much supposed to be like a John Singleton mouthpiece in Boys uh, Boys in the Hood. And we don't really have a character like that here, though if we do, it's probably the Ving Rhames character. I mean, look, I think that there's always been a through line in his very like John Singleton movies of respectability politics, which is what that is. And yes. no, no disrespect to Ebert because I think Ebert's really great. But if anyone is sold on respectability politics, it's Ebert, you know, like that's, that's been something, you know, to some extent, some of the films Ebert hates, he just finds distasteful. Oh, and absolutely. The actual art of them doesn't matter. They just grossed them out on whatever level. And so, to the extent here, I think Singleton is a little bit embarrassed sometimes by the decisions that uh, black folks make and that that comes across in his films. And so he's always trying to find a balance between we are in a world that denies our humanity, that denies us resources, that denies us opportunities, but also don't do that. You know what I mean? Right. And I don't think in 2021 we're as stoked on that because I think we have a better understanding of – uh, the creativity actually of some of the decision making that actually as much as it might 
be gross. It is born from a feeling of like, what else can I do to kind of get by in this situation? I think we also have a stronger idea of how those decisions are influenced by patriarchy. And as much as I very much like John Singleton, his films don't really criticize patriarchy unless they're specifically to say like, this thing that men do is stupid and it's limiting them. So he can see like the illogical nature of it. But a larger system of patriarchy, he's never, it doesn't feel to me like he's ever addressing that directly. The only address, the only really mention of it in this movie, and it, it was good to see simply because we don't see it in many of Singleton's movies, is the part where Tyrese's character is confronted by his mother who says, you know, basically says, what if the way that you're treating your girlfriend is the way that another man treats me? And it right. kind of, it, you know, it, it, but that really goes down to that thing where, um, where, where <laughs> it's, it's, it's really kind of an embarrassing thing where men are like, what if this was happening to your sister? What if this was happening to your mother? As if you cannot have empathy for a woman that isn't directly exactly. connected to you in any right. specific way. I mean, it does feel like some men can't react unless they have that connection, but I do feel like it's a generalization that it's just like, just think about if it was happening to me, your mom, you know, the person you love. It's just like, it doesn't have to be. I, this happening to anyone would be a shitty thing. Right, and I think the film maybe doesn't do enough to address some of the underlying senses of entitlement. Like, it, it views all of his entitlement as being related to him being spoiled or a child or whatever, and it never relates it to his masculinity in right. a direct way. Um, I will say what the movie does do, which I think is very true, is it, it illustrates very strongly the idea that at a certain point, you either have to... Within this context, you either have to find a way to get by legitimately or you have to own the illegitimacy of a certain kind of life. And that involves being Ving Rhames, right? right? Like, So Ving Rhames has found his path that will not hopefully cost him much. But he only got there after a lot of like dark shit, basically. Yeah. And we're supposed to see the pain of that, that like – uh, you know, we, we, we talked about this when we recorded before, but, you know, there's this very intense moment where Ving Rhames loses control and attacks uh, Jody. And um, it's dark. It's dark and it's not justified. But unlike everything that Jody does and can barely figure out how to feel bad about until things get really dark, Ving Rhames is immediately regretful because he is like, knows, like, this is not who I am anymore. Like, this is not the person I want to be. But for me, the level of abuse he puts up with before then is like unbelievable. Like knowing that like for a large part of his life, violence was the solution to his problems. Right. It, it takes him a long fucking time to just knock Jody around. You know, he could have just day one punched the dude in the nose if he really <laughs> wanted to. And that would have like established what the deal was. Um, but he waits till it gets to a point that feels like you you and and it's really is like instigated by by uh Jody who really thinks like you know I you know I'm the man and you are just some old fogey and you don't get to be in charge right now it's all about his authority right. and Ving Rhames makes it really clear it's never been about my authority man it's about me loving your mom yeah. and the, the reason I am mad at you is cuz I don't think you're taking care of your mom I don't care that there's another penis in the house, you know? <laughs> but that is essentially Jody's issue, is that there is another cock here, and I am not okay with that. One thing I do have a little trouble with in this movie as well is that this is a movie that starts with a quote from a psychiatrist and involves characters that have been traumatized by their experiences already. We know yes. that Jody has been in prison 
that that he obviously has been affected by that in some way, does not want to go back there. His attempts to go straight still involve a necessity of being a criminal, right? Doing things right. that are against the law. And I love that the movie doesn't have doesn't judge the characters for doing that. That's just part of what their lives are. And and that's right. that's Best part about Singleton. Yeah, absolutely. That that he's non judgmental about that sort of life. But the movie doesn't really it suggests that that trauma and that psychological damage that they're dealing with can be kind of self-corrected, right? That by making certain decisions right as opposed to on um, you know wrong, if you can see it that way, that you can actually move past this trauma and that you can find some sort of satisfaction within family, within, you know, relationships, that sort of thing. But I mean to me, Jody is a very traumatized person and at the end of the movie he still has been traumatized and I don't know if he's really dealt with that if anything that trauma is even rawer because he just went through the process of watching his friend murder Snoop Dogg in front of him uh, and seems to be incredibly troubled by that that's supposed to be the linchpin that makes him change his behavior going through that uh, that that particular experience but to me it just kind of adds on to the pile of trauma that he's dealing with I mean, I think at some point Singleton is making this movie for a certain community in which knowing that someone got killed in relationship to you is, you know, maybe not that uncommon. Fair it's enough. not common, but people know about it. And where you don't get the time and space. No one's going to pay for this dude to go to therapy. Exactly. So he, he doesn't have much choice otherwise. That being said, I think your basic you know, concern here is very true. It just doesn't feel like something that Singleton is particularly concerned yeah, about. Yeah, I don't think he cares. It's just not part right. of the story. But I, I do think the tone of the ending of the movie is interesting. And there's a part of me that wants to think that Singleton is leaving this as an open question, that actually the way all these stories are wrapping up is meant to suggest that nothing is solved, that he's grown but that the world he's a part of is no safer or easier. He's just more capable. That's all that's changed is that everything is just as fucked, but he is a little bit less internally fucked so that he can deal with this. But that doesn't mean he's fixed or that the world is fixed. Um, It's just opened his eyes, right? Right. He's just, yeah. It's just like a single thing that hopefully will have changed his perspective on the world a little bit. But I want to acknowledge that's, I think that's both of us being very generous. The film could also just end badly. You know what I mean? Like, uh, if I believe that, that the suggestion here, like when his friend who kills Snoop then is like getting baptized and stuff, um, that that is just like, uh, that 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 is Singleton sort of ending on an ambiguous note. I'm being generous. It's also possible that the movie's just not great. And I think that's the thing here is that like, um, it's part of the thing that I find frustrating about the tone of the film is that it, it makes the whole film feel weird. I, it, all the moments play funny. Like the moment when Jody's getting shot at is, you know, meant to be super dramatic and uh, whatever. But, you know, it's preceded by such a weird comedic tone that it doesn't necessarily work. And the same with this ending. Maybe he just wants the end movie to end like positive. Like, okay, everything's fixed. We're cool. I don't think that's true, but I just think the whole movie for me isn't always clear about its tone or its messaging. I do want to say that uh, that we've already kind of mentioned Ving Rhames' character. I do think his character is the most interesting part Very of this good. movie. Uh, and I also like the idea that that he isn't... 
that he he might still be a piece of shit, right? We don't know that for sure. Even at the end, they have this kind of connective moment between Jody and himself where they're bonding over the Marvin Gaye music. And, you know, it's just like, oh, we understand each other. Ving Rhames, as we're told, he has a history of, of beating his partners. He he's, has a history of being extremely violent. We see that he still has the potential for violence in him when pushed to a certain degree uh, because he, he beats up Jody and puts him through the glass uh, table. It, it's... I, but I think the character is really interesting simply because he isn't an idealized version of what Jody could be. I mean, in some ways, I guess he is. He is supposed to be the maturity that 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 Jody is looking for or should be sure. looking for. But sure. he, he's still he's still just as troubled and s- still is dealing with his shit. And maybe that does suggest a certain nuance at with the ending that we're right. we're not giving Singleton credit for the idea that whatever Jody is now at the end of the movie compared to what he is at the beginning. He may have turned a certain corner, but he's got a lot of stuff that he's still going to have to deal with for the rest of his life. And and who knows how happy that rest of that life is going to be. I mean, I think I am giving him credit for, actually, that <laughs> that I think that the best view of the movie is, is that. And I think that, um, you know, if I'm giving Singleton as much credit probably as he deserves, that Singleton is of the mindset that um, you... Uh, because of the trauma and the and the and the realities of um, growing up in a place like South Central or wherever you know in, in certain communities, that you can only really judge someone by their present and future and not by their past. If we're going to start figuring out Ving Rhames's character based upon what he did to get to where he is, then we're going to apply that to the whole community that it's, it feels like the way Singleton does his movies, that's a waste of time that it, that whatever Mel has done in the past, whatever Melvin's past is about doesn't matter as much as what he's doing right now. Right. I think that's Singleton's actual ethic. Like you may have done all kinds of fucked up shit, but if you can get your shit together and live in the world and be a positive element for the future, that's the part that matters. Your past is not, Important, other a, than the ways it shapes your, you allow it to shape your future. It's a now, weird thing to hear in 2021, where someone's past sort of, you know, it's everything, right? I mean, if, if right. enough shit is in your past, then right. your future is defined by that. Well, and I think it is. It is. I'm, let me be clear. I'm not defending this as an ethic for life because right. I think that it's naive to some extent. On the other hand, it might be a necessary place to start in communities defined by violence and and crime. Right. And mm-hmm. you know what I mean. Like again, part of Singleton's goal here, when it comes to those things, is back to Boys in the Hood. Right? Boys in the Hood is in a world where it's not even just. It's important to remember that the gang situation in L.A., by the time that Boys in the Hood comes out and then past Boys in the Hood gets even more this way, is starting to get to the point where you can't even rely on Bloods and Crips anymore. Right. You know what I mean? You get eventually to the point where there are Crips that don't get along and Bloods that don't get along because of all the factions and differences. and You know what Mm -hmm. I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So like, it's not even like choose a side in the war. It's like just try not to get killed or join up with the killers. In a place that's that that's that fraught, it makes sense to say, "Well, let's let that go and think about the future." And so, like, I think that is animating a lot of his narratives. And I think it's one of the parts of this movie that really works well is the idea that for Ving Rhames's character, he's not a hero. He's not, I think, supposed to be a mentor. And in fact, part of the reason he's hard on Jody is he doesn't want to be Jody's 
role model. He wants Jody to do better fucking now and not have to, you know, go to prison for murder or whatever the fuck went on in Ving Rames's life. You know what I'm saying? So like that, that, yeah, that's that's part of what's going on there. Again, the only reason it doesn't work is because the movie also wants to be dumb like quite honestly and and has moments that you know one of the subplots is this uh character from um uh Yvette's work trying to like seduce Jody mm-hmm. and he like you know he gets up to the point where she's given him moral sex and then he's too good to have sex with her even though she's already you know basically blowing him in yes. the movie and uh that whole sequence is dumb. It's unnecessary. It's only there really to like have another hot, you know, uh, reveal of someone's body. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. it doesn't do anything. And so it's it, it and it's not totally comedic, but it's kind of comedic. And it's you know, there are decisions like that throughout the film that I think then make some of the more subtle storytelling aspects of the film like it's it's great that with jody we have someone who is more in touch with their emotions like boys in the hood whether we're talking about um ice cube's character or we're talking about cuba gooding jr's character none of these folks are and and partly that's because of age but none of them are like really in touch with their emotional side you know uh, tyrese's character jody's he's 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 definitely traumatized and he definitely doesn't know how to be an adult but he cries he has emotions he sure. has like there's just more to him being vulnerable than there is in some of singleton's other movies so i really appreciate that aspect of it that doesn't make the movie work though and that's i think part of my frustration with it it's not though as deeper frustration as with rosewood because i think rosewood at heart is a pretty good movie that maybe wasn't the right decision for that time. This movie, I think, is broken at the script level. <laughs> and so <laughs> even though there's parts of it that are good because John Singleton, I think, is overall still pretty good, it just is not the the way to tell this story, I don't think. Um, it, I, I know I'm in a minority, I don't know about a total minority, but I'm in somewhat of a minority with that <clears throat> with that because a lot of people I know really like this yeah, movie. Yeah, it's one of the surprises when we were doing a little research on this is that is that Baby Boy is a beloved movie by a lot of people. Oh, yeah. Uh, which is why all the things that you're saying right now, Liam, are probably making certain people very, very angry, and rightfully so. So if you do have anything to say to Liam or yeah. to me uh, or any feedback at all, please go through our website and leave it. Maybe we're missing something. It's very, very possible. Again, sure. this is sure. a movie... That is meant to speak to the black community, and I can't feel like I fully envelop. Well, I don't envelop that community, but I also don't fully necessarily grasp all the nuance that's on display here. This is something that Singleton is obviously very gifted about writing about, and and connects with a lot of people. If it connected with you, please let us know why. Tell us no. Uh, let us know what we're missing in regards to Baby Boy. It is a movie I feel very conflicted about in some ways. I actually feel like I had more of a handle on it as it went along, but then the ending I felt a little disconnected from as well. I did like a lot of the when Snoop Dogg enters the picture because it kind of simplifies the movie in a lot of ways. You have this character who's just such a vile piece of shit that even Jody in comparison looks a lot more stable. But I mean, once that guy's out of the picture, then you just got shitty old Jody left over. Uh, and, and I don't really necessarily trust that that uh, he's he's fully gone through a transition mm. to a Ving Rhames type character uh, at the very end, or even if that would necessarily be a good thing. That was Baby Boy, Liam. Which means it's time for us to talk about what we'll be covering on the next and final Films of John Singleton episode. Liam, what are we going to be watching? 
2000's Shaft, a movie that I don't know. I guess I skipped it because I had only just discovered the original Shaft when right. it came out. Mm-hmm. So I think I just wasn't in a space for a remake. But for some reason, I've never watched it. I've never gone back to it. I've just never given it a chance. I watched it at the time. I have very few memories about it. It really does have a stacked cast, especially in retrospect. Uh, and it's one I'm really curious about because I do love the original Shaft film. Uh, and in the idea of a modern take on a black exploitation character like that, John Singleton seems like he would be the ideal person to handle that, right? Especially because even the if- issues that we have with the way that he necessarily presents black masculinity, that seems like it would work in a black exploitation kind of uh, context. So I'm really curious to see how we react to Shaft on the next episode of The Films of John Singleton. Liam, if people do want to send us hate mail, or if they do want to criticize us, or if they just want to get in contact at all and check out more episodes of Cinema Smorgasbord or others, what's the best way for them to do so? Well, if they want to specifically give us negative feedback, they can head over to cinemasmorgasbord.com because <laughs> you handle that, so that'll be great. If they want to say nice things about us, head over to cinepunks.com where they can find not only the latest episodes of this podcast, but a whole family of podcasts that we suggest you check out and support. Maybe check out the Patreon over there. Maybe grab yourself a t-shirt. Uh, Cinepunks is spelled C-I-N-E. P-U-N-X.com. And it's also that for all the social media, uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, it's all C-I-N-E-P-U-N-X. They can also follow us specifically on Twitter to hear about our latest episodes. And that's uh, Cinema Smorg, S-M-O-R-G, at on Twitter. Um, I guess they could follow us on Twitter, but I don't know why they'd want to, though. Well, they could, and they should, Liam. And they especially should follow you at Liam Rules. That's R-U-L-Z. Or they could follow me on there as well. It's Doug underscore Tilly. That's T-I-L-L-E-Y. As Liam mentioned, Cinema Smorgasbord is an umbrella podcast that encompasses podcasts devoted to such diverse figures as Carol Kane, Vic Diaz, uh, Jackie Chan is on there, Dick Miller, of course. And we recently launched a brand new podcast devoted to the work of Alejandro Jodorowsky, which we'd love for you to check out over at cinemasmorgasbord.com. You can also leave us review on itunes we'd appreciate it very much and of course as liam suggested leave us feedback we love every little bit and we might even mention you here on the show but with that said liam it's time for us to close the john singleton bag for another week we'll be back very soon with shaft good night everybody Nigga, homie, where you where from? You from? I bang you back and bang the set. Tat on my neck, tech on deck. Yeah, yeah, watch your step. He won't fuss, he'll just boss. Ask those fucks, I left him in dust. Trust him, boss. Cuss and get drunk and talk big shit. Yeah. Mac your bitch so quick and dip. Yeah. Hop on the site like, like we used to do. Fly handlebars, all stars is low. Keeping it trip seven days a week. And he living with